It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, July 10th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. First up, the California Report brings listeners the tale of a rediscovered star, but you won't find it by looking up at the heavens. Then, tonight's National Native News investigates what a Supreme Court ruling means for state legislatures. We've got a look at your local news and weather forecast, which includes an excessive heat watch for much of our listening area. And KVMR's Felton Pruitt brings you the latest Nevada City Chamber report. Don't miss the rundown on summer events headed to downtown Nevada City. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Hotel workers are back on strike at a number of hotels in Southern California, many of them near LAX. This is the second wave of strikes after workers walked out during the July 4th weekend. Lilia Sotelo is a housekeeper at the Sheraton Gateway Los Angeles Hotel. Everything is going up. The rent, the food, the gas, everything. And since the pandemic, the workload has been more and more and more, and it's still the salaries are not good enough. Unite Here Local 11, the union representing some 15,000 hotel workers, says inadequate pay has forced many hotel employees to live far from where they work to find affordable housing. The hotels have filed an unfair labor practices complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, claiming the union is violating the law by calling for a strike while demanding that hotels agree to terms that are unrelated to their employees. That includes asking the hotel hotel industry to support a Los Angeles City ballot measure that would require hotels to report available rooms and provide housing for unhoused people alongside other guests. Six months after its enactment, a state law requiring California's Department of Justice to automatically expunge conviction and arrest records looks like it's having an effect. California permanently expunged more than 11 million arrest and conviction records last year and is on track to clear more. That's according to data pulled from the State Department of Justice by criminal justice reform advocacy groups. Ingrid Archie is the organizing director for Time Done. She says past criminal records can loom over a person for years. It's post-conviction poverty that people are cycling in. And we want people to be able to adequately be able to take care of their families. And so when we create these type of laws, we break down the barriers that says that a person has to be poor just because they made a mistake. But Archie says many people who have served time may not even know their records have been expunged. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and adult and children's health systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives, stanfordmedicine.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And... Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. After not being seen for decades, a rare native plant was recently rediscovered on the central coasts. Botanists say the tiny Santa Inez ground star grows in the city of Lompoc and nowhere else. Reporter Beth Thornton has the story. 
In the basement of the Santa Barbara Botanic Garden, rows of cabinets house an archive of plant specimens that grow throughout the Central Coast. We have almost 200,000 or more objects that we curate down here. That's Matt Gwilliams, a botanist and curator at the garden. He's part of a team that rediscovered a rare plant that hadn't been seen for decades. It's in the sunflower family. So in your mind's eye, see a sunflower. All of that is condensed down to about two millimeters across. So this is a very, very tiny plant. Gwilliams says the plant, now called the San Ynez Ground Star, was first collected in 1929. He pulls a chart from the archives. These, these specimens are almost 100 years old. That includes a few dry, pressed leaves the size of a fingertip, but very few notes. Gwilliams says that's not much information to go on, especially when searching for something small and rare. So rare that only two botanists had ever collected it. I'm one of those people, and I'm Professor Emeritus in the biology department at Cal Poly. In 1995, Dave Keel says he noticed the low-lying plant with fanned-out furry leaves while at Vandenberg Air Force Base on a different project. He brought back a few specimens and recorded his observations. He didn't even take photos. But he did send his notes off to a colleague associated with the Rare Plant Society. Keel says it turns out the plant had not been previously identified. So it was officially named after him. Ancestrocarpus keelii. And he, na- he named it in honor of me as a, as a collector and colleague. Keel says he went back to Lompoc a few more times, hoping to see the plant again, but with no success. That was the first and only time that I ever saw that plant in living condition. In April, Matt Williams from Santa Barbara and a few colleagues went to Vandenberg Space Force Base on their own expedition. We were down on our hands and knees, see something we thought was the ground star, then get all the way on our bellies um, and, you know, with a hand lens, be able to tell we had the right thing. The plant had not been documented for almost 30 years. But why? Keel says it's possible the ground star doesn't bloom every year in drought conditions. And Williams says when it does bloom, it lasts only a month or two and can get overlooked. But even more surprising is that it's never been seen anywhere else. So as far as we know, um, there's only one population that we that botanists could go to right now on Earth. Just one small part of the Earth's surface. Williams suspects one reason the plant doesn't grow in other places is because it doesn't disperse seeds easily. But now, rediscovering the San Ynez ground star means it's possible to monitor and protect this rare species going forward. 34% of plants in the U.S. are at risk of extinction, according to a recent study by the nonprofit NatureServe. Plants in California are among the most at risk, which is why Williams says conservation is the ultimate goal. You know, without, without that knowledge, without that basic biodiversity knowledge, we can't work to conserve this plant, which is ultimately what we hope to do. It might not make sense why botanists are so invested in conserving a tiny plant like San Ynez ground star. But Gwilliam says there are plenty of tiny species that play a big role in the ecosystem. We just don't know what it is yet. Humans are big, and we tend to be focused on, on things our size or bigger. But most life on Earth is quite small. Small things can have a big impact on our ecosystem and on our world. Gwilliam says the team successfully collected ground star seeds to ensure the plant's survival. For the California Report, I'm Beth Thornton in Santa Barbara.
And finally, this summer, public tours are being offered of the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing now under construction north of Los Angeles. When completed, the crossing will allow wildlife to safely cross the 101 freeway on a wide elevated path. Many animals, including mountain lions, have been struck and killed while trying to cross freeways. And that is the California Report for Monday, July 10th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. As always, thanks for listening, and let's talk tomorrow. Up ahead in national Native news, how will a Supreme Court ruling play out at the state level? And what can be done to combat suicide, the second leading cause of death among tribal youth? National Native News investigates. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. South Dakota's Tribal Relations Committee discussed the Indian Child Welfare Act at its latest meeting. SDPD's Zeta Abbott reports. The committee's third meeting comes shortly after the Supreme Court ruling upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act. The act, commonly called ICWA, aims to keep more Native children with their tribes and communities in adoption and fostering situations. B.J. Jones is the chief judge for Sisseton Wapaton. He is thinking about what the Supreme Court ruling means for representatives and peer. There's a lot of areas in South Dakota that are ripe for some good state legislation. And just because the Supreme Court has ruled that ICWA is constitutional, which is a great relief, and most tribes believe that to be the case, doesn't mean there aren't issues that can't be clarified by a state statute. Judge Jones says a South Dakota bill could address concerns about legal responsibility between the Department of Social Services and tribal courts. Two bills codifying ICWA into state law were introduced last legislative session, but they were voted down. Opponents said they wanted to wait for the Supreme Court ruling before enacting anything. Mickey Devine is the program director of Child Protective Services on the Lake Traverse Reservation and a member of the Tribal State Coalition. She told committee members the group plans to push for legislation supporting ICWA. I am asking for legislation because we are going to continue with that state ICWA law because those challenges to this and the challenges to our sovereignty are still coming, and we need to be prepared. We want to care for our own children. We want to care for our own families here. We live here. Fourteen states have passed legislation in support of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That includes North Dakota, Nebraska, Iowa, and Wyoming. I'm SDPB's Zadia Abbott. The Bureau of Indian Education recently extended a five-year contract of a program that provides additional mental health resources for tribal youth. Emma Vanderneide of the Mountain West region reports on how it impacts more than 100 tribal schools in our region. The Behavioral Health and Wellness Program allows for both Indigenous students and staff from schools and universities to access resources. That includes telehealth counseling, a 24-7 crisis hotline, and on-site crisis support. Teresa Paul works for the Bureau and is the program lead. She said Indigenous people make up the majority of their clinical team, and they know these communities well. We're able to really engage in those types of interventions with people who are from the communities and who know how to do those interventions respectfully. Can't just tap someone to step into that role. It has to be folks that, you know, have gained that respect. The program is crucial for many American Indian and Alaska Native students. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among 8 to 24-year-olds in that demographic. Paul said it's their duty to protect their most sacred citizens, their kids. For National Native News, I'm Emma Vandenindy. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers South Pacific Division and Navajo Nation signed an agreement intended to improve USACE's support to Navajo Nation at Window Rock, Arizona this week. 
Services and any goods which the Corps may provide to the Navajo Nation under this agreement include full or partial services in the areas of planning, design, engineering, consultation, technical support and training, and construction activities. The Army Corps says the purpose of this agreement is to establish a mutual framework governing the respective responsibilities of the parties for the provision of goods and services for NN projects. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support by the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show held in Albuquerque starting October 18th. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. Early bird registration is July 28th at NIEA.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Rockland police captured escaped murder suspect Eric James Abril at 12.30 p.m. today, ending a 30-hour manhunt that began early Sunday morning when he fled from Roseville's Sutter Medical Center. 35-year-old Abril was taken into custody in a residential neighborhood near Antelope Creek following a night-long search for him by dozens of police officers. According to the Sacramento Bee, Abril was returned to Roseville Sutter Medical Center to be medically cleared for jail the same medical center he had previously escaped. However, this time round, he's under guard by six SWAT team members, instead of a single guard, as was the case Sunday night. As the KVMR news desk previously reported, Abril was initially arrested for allegedly executing a 72-year-old hostage at Roseville's Mahaney Park during an April 6th standoff with police. He's also charged with shooting the slain man's wife in the arm and wounding a California Highway Patrol officer at the scene. Fast forward to Thursday, July 6th. April was taken to the hospital for treatment of seizures and was supposed to be under 24-hour guard, with a deputy present at all times. However, shortly after 3 a.m. on Sunday, he escaped. Initially after his April arrest, April was classified as requiring two deputies if taken to a hospital, but that later was reduced to one. In a press conference, Placer County Sheriff Wayne Wu vowed to investigate how that happened and what led to the escape. What we do know currently, April escaped by running down a flight of stairs as a deputy ran after him. The deputy lost him as he made it through the hospital doors. Placer Sheriff's officials say they were investigating how the escape happened and say suggestions that the deputy had fallen asleep are not accurate. Sheriff's Office spokeswoman Angela Musalam says the deputy who lost April remains on the job. An internal investigation has begun to determine what occurred leading up to April's escape, confirming that at some point he was able to get out of his restraints. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. The Saturday edition of the Union newspaper featured a front-page article reporting the outcome of Rise Gold Corporation CEO Benjamin Mossman's provincial court retrial. 
The submitted article claims Judge David Patterson of the Provincial Court in Prince Rupert, British Columbia, read his judgment after the retrial of Mossman for environmental charges brought against him when he was the CEO of Banks Island Gold, a corporation that owned a gold and silver mine in northwestern British Columbia. The mine was ordered to close in 2015, shortly after enforcement officers from Environment and Climate Change Canada said waste from the operation had been found in the woods and wetlands surrounding it, according to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The Union article states that after a nearly year-long trial, Judge Patterson found Mossman guilty of 13 counts of discharging substances into the environment above permitted amounts. He was judged not guilty on 10 counts of failing to report environmental spills and dumping, discharging mine waste into the environment, and unauthorized works in and about a stream. In his written judgment, Judge Patterson repeatedly stated that he had suspicions about the charges on which Mossman was exonerated, but that the prosecution had failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Mossman was directly responsible for the environmental damage resulting from the well-documented spills. The Union article continues that after declaring bankruptcy in British Columbia, Mossman left the Banks Island Mine Works behind and set his sights on Canada's southern neighbor, specifically a property in Grass Valley, California, the Long Idle, Idaho, Maryland mine. Mossman then established Rise Gold Corporation, which began raising capital and developing a plan to reopen the Idaho, Maryland mine. According to the Union article, Mossman will be sentenced on the 13 counts for which he was found guilty on a date to be announced. The Union article was written by Nevada County documentary filmmaker Lou Doros. A caption underneath a photo in the article, talking about Doros, reads, quote, He has spent the past 15 months attending every hearing of the Ben Mossman-Dirk Meckert trial via MS Teams weblink. Doros has been a Grass Valley resident for 31 years. In a first-of-the-state case, a 21-year-old man was convicted Friday of second-degree murder for supplying fentanyl to a Roseville-area teen who fatally overdosed last year. The Sacramento Bee reports Placer County prosecutors say this is the first time in California that a defendant was convicted of homicide for supplying fentanyl. The drug is a synthetic opioid, 50 times more potent than heroin, and 100 times stronger than morphine. Fentanyl, USDEA Administrator Ann Milgram says, is, quote, the single deadliest drug threat our nation has ever encountered. According to the Placer County District Attorney's Office, along with the murder charge, Nathaniel Kabakungan was convicted of furnishing a controlled substance to a minor in the death of the 15-year-old girl. The District Attorney's Office has been aggressive in going after fentanyl dealers, with prosecutors filing murder charges in two other fentanyl deaths last year. Those criminal cases are still pending. Now let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. Much of our listening area will see a significant warming trend from the middle of the week through the upcoming weekend. The National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat watch, in effect from late Friday morning through early Monday evening. The hottest temperatures are expected over the weekend with widespread major heat risk. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight clear with a low around 58 degrees. Tuesday sunny with a high near 90. Tuesday night will be clear with a low around 61 degrees. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight clear with a low around 44 degrees. Tuesday sunny with a high near 79. Tuesday night will be clear with a low around 44 degrees. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight clear with a low around 58 degrees. 
Tuesday, sunny and hot with a high near 96. Tuesday night will be clear with a low around 60 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KBMR. We're well into summer and downtown Nevada City has a roster stocked with warm weather activities coming up. Stick around to hear what's in store this month. KBMR's Felton Pruitt has the details. We're talking with Stuart Baker. He's the executive director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce with our Chamber Report. What's going on in our beautiful city, Stuart? All right. Well, we're all getting set for summer nights, which will start this coming Wednesday on July 12th. And it'll be the following two Wednesdays as well, the 15th and the 26th. It's going to be all over town, all over downtown at least, from 6 to 9.30. And we'll be having the usual lineup with six stages of entertainment. We're having a bounce house. We're going to have the firewalkers on the 12th and the 26th, or I should call them the fire dancers, and the aerial walkers on the 19th. And all of this can be found as well on our website if you're uh, needing more detail at nevadacitychamber.com. There's also going to be our classic car show that's going to be on the first block of Broad Street. So that'll be, uh, yeah, it's it's looking to be a uh, a beautiful summer event. And uh, we're, we're looking forward to uh, hopefully some cool evenings. And then beyond that, our final art walk of the summer is going to be on August 4th, and that's from 6 to 9 p.m., also throughout the downtown. And uh, lastly, there's going to be Movies Under the Pines. The final event for that is July 28th, and it's going to be at Pioneer Park. And the the, uh, gates open at 7.30, and the show begins at 8.30 p.m. Do you know what the movie is? It is going to be Song of the Sea. What else you got for us? That's kind of doing it for us for the summer. You know, town is really happening. There's lots of visitors in the stores and people enjoying themselves. We've got actually our very first parklet is opening up on Pine for uh, Friar Tucks. And we're hoping that will be followed by two more later this summer. So it'll be a great chance to take advantage of eating outdoors and enjoying the uh, summertime to its fullest. What did you call it, a parklet? It is a parklet. So um, during the pandemic, as you may recall, we had a number of parking spaces that were taken out of circulation, and instead there were tables set up and planters and things like that. So the city is allowed for this to become permanent, and the businesses need to apply for a permit and build uh, a parklet to ADA specifications so the folks with disabilities can access them and uh, and also look appropriate to the historical nature of the downtown. So we have one, uh, and we're getting two more, hopefully, in uh, the latter part of the summer. All right. Well, we'll find out more about that the next time we talk. Absolutely. It's been our Chamber Report with Executive Director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce, Stuart Baker. Thanks for all the info, Stuart. Hey, no problem, Felton. Have a good one. That's our newscast for Monday, July 10th. Listen to anything you may have missed at our website, kbmr.org, and connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.